chapter 6, verse 4, if you don't have a Bible, there are men walking down the aisles right now with Bibles. And so if you just lift up your hand, they'll put a Bible in your hand. And uh, that will help you. It's actually marked to the scripture where we'll start this morning. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take this as a gift from us to you. And so we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Just part of the verse there where Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he cries out. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Father, we look to you this morning. We pray and we ask for assistance. We recognize that the greatest thoughts that we can think are thoughts about you. But Lord, how can we who are finite, men and women with limited intellects, understand you, the great and the awesome God, who is infinite, immeasurable, greater than all that we could think or imagine. And so we recognize, Lord, that when we think about you, we need the revelation of your word, and we need the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray this morning that as we dig into the scripture, that we would not mm, be fearful of it (laughs) and the revelations that we're wrestling with, but instead, Lord, that we would accept what your word says, take it deep into our heart and to our mind, and allow you by your spirit to help us to understand to whatever degree that we can the great truths that we'll look at this morning. And Lord, we know that you'll do all that and more because we ask it confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we continue this morning, we continue a series I started uh, probably, I don't know, last fall. And that is, I really sense that God wanted us to move from what I had taught before, which was teaching through the book of Ephesians, and doing a, a series on God himself. In other words, focusing on the author of scripture, focusing on the author of life, to really come to understand who he is as he is revealed in scripture. And so we've had an opportunity to look at a number of different attributes that he has all power, that he has all knowledge, all wisdom, that he is actual and real in existence, that he doesn't need anything. And this morning, as we just read in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we come to this next attribute of God, and that is that God is one. Now, what's fascinating is that when we turn to the New Testament, we discover in Mark's gospel that there is a religious expert who is listening to Jesus as he responded to the penetrating questions of the religious leaders of the first century. There were the Pharisees who were the religious conservatives, there were the Sadducees who were the religious liberals, and they were really trying to find some hole in Jesus's uh, philosophy and and in his theology. And so they're prodding and testing and hoping that they could catch him in his words. And this particular religious expert was so impressed with the way that Jesus handled all of the questions that came his way that he was motivated now to ask the most important question in his mind that we could ask of any rabbi, of any teacher, of any theologian. And the question is this, what is the greatest of all the commandments in the Bible? And what's fascinating is that question wasn't unique to this particular religious leader. In fact, it is a question that even rabbinical students wrestle with today. You go back historically, you find that since the time of Moses and the writing of the law, where there's 613 different commandments, that the rabbis will go back and forth and argue about which is the greatest commandment, all of this. And so in one sense, it's not a unique question, but it is the most important question. 
In other words, what is the greatest commandment of all that God has given? And in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, without hesitation, Jesus responds. In other words, he doesn't stop for a moment and go, well, let's consider what Rabbi Hillel said about this topic. Oh, let's go over here to, to Rabbi Fred or whatever. No, no, Jesus, without hesitation, said this, and I quote, he said, the first of all the commandments is this. In other words, here's your answer, and the answer is this. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then our response to that revelation, Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, friends, Jesus' response should really kind of wake us out of any kind of like maybe just sleepiness this morning. If you were up late last night watching, you know, binge watching some series until five in the morning or whatever, or maybe just couldn't sleep. You were suffering from kind of anxiety or spiritual warfare. Didn't get enough caffeine. But this response of Jesus should wake us out of our slumber. It should cause us to sit up and take notice because in light of the fact that Jesus himself, God in human flesh, points to this as the greatest of all the commandments, should make us want to stop and consider what the Bible means when it says that God is one. In other words, if this is the greatest commandment, we need to understand what that means. For surely since this is of greatest importance, at least in the Lord Jesus' esteem, that it must be important for you and I to understand what the Bible says and what the Bible means when it says that God is one. And, as Jesus mentioned here in Mark 12, how an understanding of that truth should influence the way that you and I think about God so that we can love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Now, I want to remind you this morning that, again, Jesus said all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, in that love, the expression of our love is our mind. In other words, there are things that we can do with our mind that express love to God. And one of those things we can do is to stop and to think and consider the hard and difficult truths of Scripture. In other words, to wrestle with some of these attributes of God that maybe sound a little too theological, a little too academic for us. But all of us can understand it to some degree, and as we consider, as we think, as we meditate on God and His attributes, as we really consider the testimony of Scripture, God through the Spirit will help us to understand to greater depth and degree what this means when the Bible says that God is one. Well, friends, the importance of this commandment is seen all day, every day, in the practice of the Jewish faith. Because since the time of Moses down to this very day, twice a day in the morning and the evening, every Orthodox or religious Jew will stop and pray, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they do that for a number of reasons, but they do it specifically because this one single verse captures the fundamental difference between the God of the Scripture, the God that you and I worship, the God that the Jewish people worship, that true and the living God, as distinct from the multitude of gods and goddesses that are worshipped by the pagans throughout the world. Friends, this verse reminds us that God wants you and me, God wants His people to understand that the foundation of a relationship with Him is based on this immutable, unchangeable truth that there is only one God. And while many people in the world today would disagree, claiming that there are in fact many gods, Scripture makes it 
clear without apology that there's only one God. For example, the Lord speaking through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 44, 6, boldly, again without apology, says this, and I quote, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last. And listen, besides me, there is no God. <laughs> in other words, he looks out in the heavenlies. He looks to the expanse of ends of the universe. He looks in every planet and every place. And there is no one and nothing that is his equal. God is a unit of one. <laughs> there is one God, not many. And so our continuing study of God's attributes we turn now to the attribute of his oneness, that we might know him better, that we might love him more. Well, friends, as we just read, God declares that there is but one God. Now, that oneness of God is expressed interestingly enough, at least as Bible students suggest, in two different of his attributes. Number one, the first attribute that we're familiar with is what theologians call divine unity. Now don't get all excited like, oh no, he's using theological terms. You guys are brilliant. You can understand this. It's simple. Divine unity, which simply means that God is one being, not many. In other words, there's one and only one God, what, what we would call monotheism. Mono is single, one, theism, God, versus polytheism, Holy meaning many, theism, God, many gods. No, the Bible is clear. There are not a multiplicity of gods and goddesses, such as are worshipped in the Roman and the Greek pantheon, worshipped by by, in Norse mythology, or today in Hinduism, where they have millions of gods, or Mormonism, that is kind of a weird twist on tritheism with the added kind of idea that if you're a good Mormon man, that you get to become a god. <laughs> Well, listen, there is only one God, and the Bible is unapologetic about that, as Captain America quoted, <laughs> and he's an authority on the subject, because in the Avengers, when Natasha Romanoff pointed to Thor and Loki to warn Captain America to be careful, because she said they're like gods, he responded correctly and theologically accurately by saying, there's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. However, when the Bible declares that God is one, it means much more than the fact that there exists only one God. In other words, there's more to it than just the divine unity. It also tells us that God is one in his nature, which means that God isn't made up of parts. He doesn't have a body, a mind, and a soul. He has no compartments within himself, no division, no conflict. Everything that God is, he is perfectly and without conflict or mixture of imperfection or contradiction. This attribute of God is the one that most believers are not familiar with. Here's your fancy phraseology. It's called divine simplicity. <laughs> Pastor Paul, now, did you just call God a simpleton? No, I did not. <laughs> Don't misunderstand. When Bible students and theologians speak of God's simplicity, they do not mean that he is a simpleton, that is a person with, with kind of a, a, you know, a negligent intellect, right? No, no, far from it. What they mean is that God is simple in his being. He's one. Again, he doesn't have hands and fingers and toes and a, and a body and a soul and all of that. No, he has no parts because he is a pure spirit. And therefore, he is indivisible. Now, here's where it gets really exciting. Think about this. His oneness, that divine simplicity, means that all of God's essence is identical with his existence. 
Oh, no, 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 Pastor. Okay, where's the exit? Hang in there. What that means is that God is what God has. In other words, God doesn't just express love. God is love. Oh, wait, 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 right? We can say that of ourselves. We can express love, but I can't say I am love. God alone says I am love. God doesn't just possess all power. No, he is all power. And so it goes with all of his attributes, his immutability, his omniscience, his, his omnipotence, right? His eternality, on and on it goes. The point is that his divine essence, all that God is cannot be separated from what God has. You can't separate love from God. You can't separate justice from God. It's all part of the one God that we worship. Another way that we might express it is this. Who God is and what God is are identical, which is exactly what God in the desert of the burning bush told Moses. When Moses asked, he said, who are you and by what name should I tell the children of Israel that I've been sent to liberate them from the bondage of Egypt? And God said, I am that I am. In other words, all that he is, what he is, you know, who he is, it's all one unit. Or we might say that he is who he is. Well, friends, that's divine simplicity, the oneness of God who is the great I am. Well, the biblical foundation for God's unity and God's simplicity, in other words, this oneness, that there's one being called God who is one in his essence, Okay, is demonstrated all through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. We've just looked at a scripture in Deuteronomy 6. We've looked at Isaiah 44. So I want to look now at that divine unity, that divine simplicity, as expressed by the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself. Because again, what I want you to have is a biblical foundation. This isn't just something that theologians sitting around after 18 espressos kind of boom, a revelation, you know, jitter, jitter, jitter. I know. (laughs) No, this is divine revelation. This is what God says. So by way of example, speaking of God's unity, that there's only one God, the apostle Paul writing to the Romans in Romans chapter three, verse 30 says this. Listen to what Paul writes. There is one God. Pretty clear, isn't it? (laughs) Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. And Paul says that again in his letter to the the Corinthians, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, where Paul says, therefore, concerning the things, eating of things offered to idols, he says, we know that an idol is nothing. (laughs) Those aren't gods or goddesses. He says, there is no other God but one. In other words, Paul's making it very clear there's only one God. To which James adds, you believe that there is one God? (laughs) He says, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. In other words, James reminds us that in the spirit realm, uh, there is no no, this silliness of, you know, polytheism, that there's uh, gods and goddesses, all, you know, a hill god and a mountain god and a, a stream god and a sky god. And what. No, the demons know exactly how many gods there are. There's one <laughs> to whom they tremble before and they know that there's a day coming when they will be cast forever into the lake of fire. And so they tremble when they think of that one God. And so our belief in the oneness of God as expressed in his unity, that there's only one God, is established on the sure foundation of scripture, again, from Genesis to Revelation. 
Well, let's turn to the to more difficult aspect of this oneness, the divine simplicity. And the biblical evidence for divine simplicity is demonstrated, first of all, in the nature of God that is described by the Bible where it says that he is pure spirit. Now think about it. What that means is that God is not made of matter. He is immaterial. Everything around us, right? This pulpit, the chairs you're sitting on, the skin on your chinny-chin-chin, right? The stars in the universe, everything that's been created was made by God, and it is not God. In other words, he didn't make stuff that he's made of. No, no, he made that stuff, but he's not of that stuff. He's immaterial. And that's very different than you and I and the Pleiades and the redwood trees and sequoia and the ocean that washes across our shores because everything that is made of matter has parts. It's physical, it's material. The God who is immaterial, he's not made up of atoms or molecules. He doesn't have hands and feet and eyes and a nose. He who is immaterial doesn't have parts. And that's evidence of the oneness of his being. Again, what we call divine simplicity. Think about it, pure spirit, you can't divide it. There's nothing to grab a hold and say, I'm going to pull you know, that out of it. No, it's all, he's all one. And Jesus affirmed that truth when he was speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, John 4, verse 24, and he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus earlier in John's gospel declared, no one has seen God at any time, John 1, 18. Later in John 6, 46, he says, no one has seen the Father. And the point is what Jesus is describing is that when we think about God, God the Father, God the Spirit, he's bigger than his creation. (laughs) Oh, well, how do you even look at that? Right? I mean, think about that. How do you look at a God who's bigger than the universe? Well, the point is that we cannot comprehend he who is invisible, he who is pure spirit. And that's because, again, our physical eyes have not been been given the capacity to see into that spirit realm, which, of course, is why any time that God wants to show up on earth and communicate face-to-face with mankind, he always shows up in the person of God, the Son, that is Jesus, God in human flesh. In other words, we look in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, where God shows up, like in Genesis 18, for example, where it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. Oh, that's interesting. God appeared to Abraham? Well, not only appeared to him, they walked together, talked together, negotiated over Sodom and Gomorrah together, had lunch together. Clearly, that's not God the Father. Jesus said, no one has seen God for his spirit. No one has seen the Father. Who did they see? Who did Abraham see? Jesus Christ, God in human flesh which is exactly what Paul communicated to his friends in Colossae when he wrote in Colossians 1 verse 15, he said, he, Jesus, is the image, listen, of the invisible God, God who is spirit. Well, all these verses and many more testify that God is immaterial, that his essence himself is immaterial, his pure spirit. Therefore, again, he is simple, he is one, he is indivisible. Now, it might help to kind of build on this idea by looking at what the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1-5, where he tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
Well, friends, John is here affirming the oneness of God's being, that by extension there exists within God no contradictions, no conflicts within himself. He's pure light. There's no shadow. There's no darkness at all. He is pure light. In other words, what God is, he is perfectly and without impurity or contradiction from eternity past, which we cannot measure, through eternity in the future, which we cannot measure. He has always been perfect with no mixture or impurity or contradiction within himself. So stop for a minute and think about what John's saying. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then we could just begin to go through each of the attributes of God and say, for example, that God is wisdom and in him is no foolishness at all. <laughs> right? In other words, there's no folly in God. No like, you know, oh, uh, kind of a moment where he forgot who he was and, you know, oh, God, I forgot to hold the universe together there. No, there's no folly at all in God. God is good and in him there is no evil at all. God is power, and in him there is no weakness at all. And in other words, all that God is, he is perfectly without conflict or contradiction within himself. All this is true because God is one. And as such, he exists eternally in a perfect, indivisible oneness. Now friends, that's in stark contrast to how you and I experience existence in life. Think about our, ourselves, our, our bodies, these bodies that, that contain our spirit and our soul. Uh, think about your dog, your cat, the fish at the, you know, in, the, in the sea, the birds in the air, the planets, everything else in creation is made up of parts. In other words, there's not a, just a, a, a unity of, of simplicity. No, all of us have parts. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, a person's body is one thing, but it has many parts. And though there are many parts to a body, all those parts make only one body. The human body, Paul says, has many parts. Again, Paul contrasts for us our nature and God's nature. God who is simple, no parts, we have parts. In other words, you look at our body and we're, we have organs, we have bones, we have blood, we have fingernails, we have hair, we have teeth, we have toes, we have brains, right? All these different parts. And we also recognize that we can lose parts and add parts, <laughs> right? So by way of example, a person can lose a tooth or, or, and I don't mean to call attention to it, hair. <laughs> but we can also add parts like a crown or an implant to replace a lost tooth or a toupee to cover a bald head. We can even change our personality over time. In other words, the person you and I are today is not the same person we were when we were eight years old, right? And for those of us that maybe lived a, a, an ungodly life as a, as a youth and then came to faith in Christ, thank God that we're not the same person today as we were once before. We've changed, even our personality has changed. And then ultimately we recognize that at death, our spirit and soul is separated from the body. The body stays in the ground, right? And for the righteous who have trusted in Christ, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our spirit, our soul are immediate with the Lord. They're separated because we have parts. And while our essence always remains the same, that is what we are, we are always still human. Nonetheless, our attributes, who we are, the color of our hair, 
the height or shortness of our body, right? The length of our limbs, the number of the teeth we have, even our personality, all that can change over time. And so Bible students and theologians say that you and I and everything that God has created are complex. We're made of parts. But not so with God. (laughs) God never changes because he is perfectly one in his nature. Now I know for some of you this is like pushing your minds, but hang with me because Jesus said, this is the greatest of all commandments. So we want, to, we want to, even if it's a struggle, we want to work through this and let it stir around in our brains for the next week because it's beautiful. Listen, God's essence, what he is, and his attributes, who he is, are identical and cannot be separated. As such, every attribute of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his immutability, his love, his light, all that exists in perfect, unchanging harmony with every other attribute in his nature. And therefore, he can never lose anything or add anything to himself because he's one. He has no parts. He's perfect. So, for example, God doesn't have a mind where it contains all of his wisdom and knowledge and a heart that beats with his love and compassion. No, no, there's no separation like that in God. Rather, each attribute of God exists wholly and indivisibly and eternally with every other attribute of his. The point is you can't separate God's love and his justice. No, they operate perfectly in harmony without contradiction. You can't separate his mercy and his wrath, his knowledge and his compassion. Everything that God is, he is holy without division because he is simple in his being. He is one. Now, at this point, you're thinking, oh, dear God, (laughs) I could have watched this online and had more coffee to drink to keep me going through this sermon, right? Or I could have just waited until Pastor Damien came back. (laughs) Hang on. This is important. Again, first of all, because when asked what the greatest of all commandments is, that Jesus said that this truth, that God is one, is the greatest of all commandments, And we need to understand it so that we might love him as Jesus commanded with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second reason it's important is because the doctrine of God's oneness provides us a tool to debunk the false logic that people are foisting on us all day, every day as a justification for rejecting Christ. Now you have probably heard someone at some time say, either while you're trying to share Christ with them, or on an interview on, you know, some late night show and they've got some famous atheist or actor or whatever who, you know, rejects Christ, some political activist. And they'll say something like this. Well, I reject the God of the Bible. And the question of why, and they'll say something like this. Well, a God of love would never condemn anyone to hell. Right? How many times have you heard that as an excuse to reject faith in Christ? Well, friends, the truth that God is one responds by saying, listen, we can't elevate any of God's attributes above the others. Every one of his attributes has to work perfectly together in harmony. In other words, for the person who claims that a God of love would never send anyone to hell would logically mean that God could only be love. He could never be just. And whenever I hear somebody say, well, the God of love would never send anyone to hell, I go, whoa, time out. Do you want God to be just love and not just, like to condemn the wicked, right? 
to do away with the child murderers and rapists and, and, and all of the evil in the world, or do you just want a God of love, right? And they're like, oh, no, no, I, I want that justice, right? Because they want justice for the oppressed. They want justice for the widow and the orphan. It's like, okay, well, then you've got to have both of those working together somehow. So you can't say a God of love would never send anyone to hell because what you're saying is God is only love. He's not just. Well, friends, that false logic is what we call in philosophy, ready for a new phrase to use at Starbucks this week, a fallacy of composition. <laughs> you're thinking, oh, what is that? It's not that difficult. What it means is this. When a person says something like, a God of love would never send anyone to hell, it's false logic because what it says is that what is true of the part is true of the whole. So for example, if somebody is watching this sermon right now online, they would correctly observe that Pastor Paul is bald, which reminds me of a life verse. So for all of you who are follically challenged, I'm gonna give you your life verse if you don't have one. It is Leviticus 13:40, where God says, as for the man whose hair has fallen from his head, he is bald, but he is clean. <laughs> well, back to my illustration. The person watching this sermon online today would correctly observe that I am bald, and as we just learned, I am clean. <laughs> but it would be untrue to conclude that all pastors are bald. In other words, just to kind of group us all together, you know, a pastor is bald, part is true of the whole. Or worse, to conclude that the entire congregation at Calvary Chapel in Modesto, including the women here, are bald because Pastor Paul is bald. Ew. Clearly, that's not true. Well, that's a fallacy of composition. To conclude that it was true of part is true of the whole. Well, friends, that's the error in the false narrative of the person who takes any of God's attributes individually and raises it above all the others as if they kind of exist in contradiction to each other or they can be divided. But because God is one, all of his attributes exist together in perfect harmony and he is therefore able to be both loving and just. So if you were here the last time I taught, I mentioned Oprah Winfrey. And as a young person, she rejected the Christian faith when she heard her pastor say that God is a jealous God. Well, she didn't like that because she wanted a God of love, not a God of jealousy. So she said, well, if God is just, I want nothing to do with that God. She was incorrectly elevating one attribute of God, his jealousy, over another attribute, his love. God's oneness responds by saying, no, no. God's attribute of jealousy operates in perfect harmony with all of his attributes, including his attribute of love. In fact, as I mentioned in the last study that I did, God's jealousy is a perfect expression of his love to protect you and I from anyone and anything that would rob us of what he knows is best for our lives. So you don't separate them. No, God is jealous and love, but they work together perfectly. And the take-home point is this. That God's oneness tells us that his essence, what he is, a unique being, the divine God, and his attributes, who he is, his divine nature, are identical and inseparable. Or we might say it this way, what God is, is what God is like. Now the application, at least one application, is this. If unity is true, there's one God who exists in perfect oneness, Okay, then polytheism in all its forms is false. 
In other words, any religion that claims there's more than one God is false because God says there's one, and he exists as one. And so polytheism is false because it denies God's unity. Tritheism, kind of a word that, again, I'm throwing out there for you to think about, is an ancient Christian heresy that said there wasn't one God in three persons, but there's three separate gods. Today, Mormonism practices a form of tritheism where they see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as three individual gods, right? The point is that that's a heresy because it denies his simplicity, that there's a oneness in his being. Idolatry, then, of any kind is sinful. So if it's true that there is one and only one being in the universe that is God, then one and only one being in the universe is worthy of your worship and of mine. And therefore, the worship of anyone or anything else is sinful, and it's a sin against the true and the living one God, and therefore worthy of judgment. Well, friends, even though the scripture is clear, there are some who reject and object to the oneness of God. And there's a number of interesting protests raised against God's simplicity that are based on some really sophisticated philosophical arguments where literally if I was to delve into them, I'd spend the next 25, 35 minutes just defining metaphysical terms before we could even talk about the argument. We're not going to do that. (laughs) If that's the kind of thing that really tickles your intellect, then I'm going to point you towards Pastor Tom, (laughs) our resident theologian and librarian, and he can point you to some good books where you can work through that stuff. For the rest of us, including me, who do not have a PhD in philosophy, the most common argument that you and I are going to run into on this street against the oneness of God is the question, whoa, whoa, aren't you a Christian? Well, then how does God exist as one and yet three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? That sounds like a contradiction to me, right? And that's the argument that you're going to receive from Jews who reject Jesus, Muslims, and cult members, like the Way International, who reject the triunity of God. But again, that's going to take an awful lot of time to develop, so guess what? We're going to do that next Sunday. So you've got to come back next week. Come on, put your seatbelt somewhere, talk the triunity of God next Sunday. So let's move now from the cake to the icing. In other words, let's get to that cream cheese and you know whipped with a little vanilla and some powdered sugar frosting i know it's almost lunch but think about that the tastiness all right the blessings and the benefits that we receive is because of god's oneness number one god's oneness means that he is indivisible and therefore indestructible Because God is one and does not have parts, think about it, he cannot come apart, be torn apart, blown apart, or fall apart. And in a world where everything and everyone, I'm talking the universe, right, and every single creature in the universe, eventually will come apart, fall apart, be blown apart, right, because all of us are made of parts. What a great comfort then to know that our hope in God who is one is eternally secure because his divine oneness, his simplicity tells us because he's indivisible, he is therefore indestructible. Here's the point. Oftentimes we will be tempted to place our trust in anything or anyone other than the one true and living God. But God's oneness reminds us that we cannot put our hope in the fiercest warrior or the most benevolent king or the greatest president or statesman 
because ultimately every person's body and mind will fall apart. We cannot put our hope in the highest wall, the strongest fortress or the deepest bunker because every wall, every stronghold that has ever been made is made up of parts, of stone, of brick, of mortar, of cement and steel, all of which can be torn apart, blown apart, and if not, will one day, just through entropy, fall apart. And finally, we cannot even put our hope on terra firma. Some people worship Mother Earth. <laughs> no, we can't put our hope on the earth, this good ground beneath our feet, nor on the highest mountain, nor even the massive continents that span our globe. For we know, especially here in California, that the earth can be shaken, <laughs> and the mountains fall, and even the continents drift apart. Friends, nothing in all the created universe is eternally secure because everyone and everything in the universe can fall apart, come apart, be blown apart, or be torn apart. Except for God, who alone is one. And so our eternal hope is secure because it's placed in the one God who in his essence is indivisible. He cannot come apart, fall apart, be blown apart, or torn apart. And therefore, his purpose and his plans cannot be defeated or destroyed or divided, including his promise and plan to redeem you and me and to bring us safely to the shores of eternity where he's preparing a place that we might dwell with him forever. Well, friends, the corollary is this. Anyone or anything that can come apart, fall apart, be blown apart or torn apart is not God. So every cult leader that has ever lived that claims to be God, you can just right up front say, yeah, whatever, not following you. Because <laughs> you can literally watch them fall apart. In other words, you watch them long enough and suddenly the skin starts to droop, right? <laughs> Teeth fall out, hair falls out, right? They're falling apart, right? Obviously, they are not God. And so we can reject them. Only God is one, and therefore he alone is indivisible, indestructible, and our eternally secure fortress in whom we can take shelter. And then the second benefit is this, and this is an interesting one. Because God is one, he has never conflicted within himself. That means that God is never conflicted in his thoughts. He doesn't wrestle in his mind over doing, you know, like, okay, should I do this or should I do this? Like, should we create this or maybe we'll create that? You know, I don't like that waterfall. We're going to kind of, no. no, God doesn't wrestle in his thought between, you know, what he did or what he didn't do or what's right or what's wrong. God has no conflict with himself. Now think how different that is than you and I, right? Every one of us knows by personal experience what it is to be conflicted. Some of you laid awake last night conflicted, Right? You either are making a decision and you're conflicted about which choice to make or you made a decision you're conflicted about whether you made the right choice or not. As the Apostle Paul so eloquently describes in Romans chapters 8, the life of the flesh versus the life of the spirit, he talks about this war that wages within all of us, both the lost and the, and the saved, between the flesh which wants to do the things of the world and the spirit which wants to do things of God and it's all taking place in our mind for control of where we're going to go in life. And even when you and I make good and godly decisions, where we know it's based on chapter and verse, we're, we're absolutely positive based on the word of God that we made the right choice, even then we can lose sleep and toss and turn because we're conflicted in our mind. But not God. 
Because he is one, he never second guesses any decision that he has ever made. He isn't pacing back and forth in heaven this morning, stressing out and worried about his decision to let you and me become one of his children. He's not looking at Michael, Michael, what do we do? We let Paul Lester into the kingdom of God? April 4th, 1976, Michael, where were you? He accepted me by faith. Why, why did we let him do that? I have to spend eternity with this guy. No, God isn't doing that. And the point is he will never regret his decision to accept you and me who have received Christ by faith into his eternal family. Now just think about that for a moment. (laughs) How different than you and I who, again, have been conflicted over so many decisions in life. Made a decision we thought was good only later to regret it. And it could be from little things to big things. Little things like, you know, do I do the milk chocolate or the dark chocolate? I'll give you advice, always dark chocolate. Anyway, to the person that you chose to marry, right? From little decisions to big decisions. And how many times we made a decision only later to regret it. But God has never known regret because God has never conflicted about anything, including every single decision he's ever made. So friends, when it comes to the question of salvation... You and I can let our hearts be still. We can let our anxious thoughts be calmed. And we can reject every condemnation that the enemy would whisper in our ear to, remind, to, to, to make us doubt our salvation. We can instead remind ourselves that God is not conflicted at all. Oh, we might be, but he's not conflicted about the decision he made to choose you to spend eternity with him. Now, that's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. Let me read you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. Beloved by the Lord. Listen to Paul. Again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. <laughs> in fact, God is so unconflicted in his thinking that he already sees you and I who accept Christ as Savior and Lord seated in the heavens. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, He has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How sure? Oh, just read Revelation chapter 5, where the apostle John on the island of Patmos was taken in the spirit to see the latter days. And it was revealed to him in Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room of God. And in chapter 5, John records for us the words of the church in heaven singing praises to Jesus where they say, you have redeemed us by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation. Hey, John's in the future, writing about what he's seeing in heaven in the future. In other words, he saw you and me in that heavenly choir. Come on now. Thank you. (laughs) So we can give thanks to God for the salvation that he has provided and for the attribute of his oneness which richly supplies us with the assurance that he will never regret the choice that he made to make you and me a child of his so that we might spend eternity with him. Friends, God is one. There is only one God, and he cannot be divided. Everything he is, he is completely, perfectly, without division or contradiction for all of eternity. Everything that he is, he is holy and without conflict because he is simple in his being. God is one. 
And with this new understanding, I know I stretched some of you this morning. You're thinking, oh, that was a little too much academia for me. No, no, listen. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, he wants us to use these thinkers to know more than just Brock Purdy's statistics. He wants us to know him. And with this new understanding of God's nature, I pray that we might love him better. In fact, that we might love him as Jesus commanded. When Jesus said in Mark's gospel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you, Paul Lester, and all of us here in the congregation this morning, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let's love him this week in a greater, in a more passionate way as we now understand him just a little bit better than we did when we started this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that you are infinite. And by that simple definition, you are beyond our finite minds. Oh Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your word and the teaching of your spirit that reveals to us your nature, but we understand that we're just scratching the surface. We can know as much as you've told us about yourself, but beyond that, we cannot know. And so, Lord, we've tackled really a deep and challenging aspect of your nature, and that is your oneness. Father, I pray that this week that we would allow you by your Spirit to bring back the words of our study this morning and that we might spend some time looking at those scriptures, that we might spend time in prayer, that we might wrestle in our mind over this understanding of your nature. And Lord, that as we do, that you would give us a greater depth of appreciation for how marvelous you are, how, how high above you are, how far beyond our comprehension you are, and then rejoice that the one true and the living God has sent his son to die in our place, that we, through simple faith in that gift of salvation, might become your children and live with you for eternity, where literally we'll spend every day exploring the depth and the greatness of who you are. And so thank you, God, for how great you are as expressed in all of your attributes and this morning expressed through your oneness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.